The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Well, that was a little bit more like it. The Buffalo Bills defeated the Las Vegas Raiders handily since the last time we've talked. And I want to talk a little bit about learning how to putt. For those of you who clicked on this without looking at the title, you're missing out first off. But for those of you who did look at the title, the title of today's podcast is Happy Learns How to Putt. For the uninitiated, Happy Gilmore was an Adam Sandler movie from the 1990s that involved a hockey player deciding to play golf. And because of that, he brought a lot of the hockey player mentality to golf, which of course ended with the fish out of water trope serving as much of the comedy for the movie. But specifically, one of the main differences between Happy in his golf skills at the beginning of the movie versus at the end of the movie is that Happy learned how to putt. So because he was a hockey player, he always had tremendous power off the tee, but he learned how to putt. Now, he used a hockey stick to do it, which, of course, again, source of the comedy. He got into a brawl with Bob Barker because... Of course he did, hockey player. You kind of had to be there. But Happy Gilmore learned how to putt. And so that was the metaphor that I wanted to use for Josh Allen and playing within the offense. I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about when it comes to quarterbacks is we make the assumption that playing within the offense is a given. And it's just not. We use it as a derogative when it comes to other quarterbacks. And then when it comes to our quarterback, we don't think about it at all. So the ability to play with an offense is a plus 
for a quarterback. Because you should operate within the offense first. That should be the foundational piece of you playing quarterback is operating the offense, running the play, the proper number of steps, the eyes in the right place at the right time. The read happens correctly. The ball comes out on time. That should be the foundational piece of playing quarterback in the NFL. That should be the first thing you do. All the creation aspects that we are now looking at for our quarterbacks going, hey, you know, we need to have that little extra, that little creation aspect. You got to be able to create your own offense. Josh Allen, Patrick Holmes, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts. These players, you're like, hey, they can create offense, which is great when the play doesn't work, when the protection doesn't hold up, when your receiver falls down, when there's the perfect coverage call for the offensive play that you called, when the stuff that should happen can't happen due to an error, then you want to make sure that you can create. Because that's what makes it frustrating for defensive coordinators to play against you. The thing that makes it frustrating for defensive coordinators to play against you is I can have everything right. I can do my job, call the right coverage for what they want to accomplish on offense. I can make sure I get a free rusher. I can have my guys win up front and I can still lose the down because he can create. But that should never be the primary aspect of the way you play quarterback in the NFL. Because if you have to create on every play, it's better than losing the down, but you're never going to have as much success per creation play as you do per play that went according to plan. Ideally, all the stuff goes according to plan, but we don't live in an ideal world. You don't live in a world where every single offensive call goes great. And that's when that extra, that's when that four to six plays a game on offense that certain quarterbacks can make and other quarterbacks can't, that can help be the difference between your team winning and your team losing. And that's the reason why we look for those creation traits in our quarterbacks. But primarily, you want a quarterback who can run the offense. And that's learning how to putt. Driving the ball a million yards off the tee is great. If you can't putt, it doesn't matter. It's all just flash. It's just flashy. That's all it is. But it's not going to give you meaningful, sustainable success. The Houdini stuff that Josh Allen does should be something that elevates him past the Jared Goffs of the world, past the Kirk Cousinses of the world, who can run the offense. Those are two of the great examples of people who can run the offense really well at a really high level. If I want a quarterback who will just run the offense, they will run the offense. But they can't create something for me if the play isn't right, if the receiver screws up, if the offensive line breaks down. They're, they're not going to do that consistently. That's not who they are as quarterbacks. And that's okay, but that trait, that ability to create offense, that's supposed to be what takes Josh Allen past them. But that only works if you first have what they also have. If you have the creation stuff, but then you don't have what Jared Goff and Kirk Cousins have, then you're not going to actually be a better quarterback. And what we saw Monday night against the New York Jets was not a quarterback who was better than Kirk Cousins and Jared Goff. 
We saw a quarterback who was trying to create something when the more optimal way is to just run the offense. Creating is great when you can't run the offense. When you can run the offense, you should run it. Structural integrity was going to be the name of this podcast before I came up with the Happy Gilmore reference. Structural integrity. Maintaining the integrity of the structure of the play should be first and foremost. And then if something goes wrong, then by all means, go ahead and create. And it was really nice to see that from Josh Allen. It's one of the things that's hilarious about the criticisms of Ken Dorsey that come out of Monday night. Man, that offense was crazy. How would you know Josh Allen didn't do any of it? (laughs) He didn't execute any of the offense as it was intended. How do you know? The answer is you watch the L-22 and you can kind of get an idea. You're like, okay, well, this is what the play was supposed to do. And it didn't do it because Josh Allen was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And that's the thing that makes me so irritated when I see people bashing on Tua Tungavaloa for running the offense. Because running the offense, doing that at a high level, that's a trait in and of itself that not every person can do. Look at the struggles that you're having with other quarterbacks around the league. Zach Wilson cannot run the offense. That's the problem. Mike White, last year, could run the offense. That's the difference. Zach Wilson couldn't run the offense. Running the offense at a high level, the Kirk Cousins, the Jared Goffs, the Tuas of the world, running the offense at a high level is a desirable quarterback trait. Let's stop poo-pooing it because we just saw... Last Monday, an example of a quarterback who wasn't running the offense. Now imagine if that was the case all the time. Would you think that was a bad quarterback? It feels like we just forgot what it was like to have bad quarterback play and what that looked like. Because we just blame play callers all the time. We just want to blame play callers. Just the ability to run the offense is in and of itself a high-level trait if you can run it at a high level. Right now, Kirk Cousins... Jared Goff, Tua, they are running their offenses at a high level. Yes, 100%. The Dolphins have better skill position players than a lot of teams, and they have a really good offensive mind. I think highly of Mike McDaniel as an offensive mind. But just having a quarterback who can run that offense at a really high level is meaningful. We saw an example of a quarterback who was not running that offense at a high level, in the playoffs, and the Bills almost lost to a player who was not running it at a high level. So what I want us to take away from week one and week two, and the lesson we can learn from the juxtaposition between those two weeks, is that there is value in running the offense. And that by itself is meaningful. Take away the creation ability for a second. Just running the offense has value and not every quarterback can do it. And even every quarterback who can do it doesn't always do it. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So Josh Allen executed the offense. One of the big differences. He still had those plays that were awesome. The touchdown to Khalil Shakir, not a lot of quarterbacks going to do that. You know why it was necessary? Because the, the protection broke down. He needed to be a creator because... The play was not going to run off smoothly. And he did. He did awesome stuff when we needed him to do awesome stuff. Don't try and do awesome stuff when you could just run the play. We are going to go to emails. Nick sent me an email and said, Bruce, thanks for all you do. Gives me something to look forward to weekly. I have two questions. For the first time I can remember in the McDermott era, during week one, we didn't keep a nickel corner on the field the whole game. We had a healthy dose of rap and less of Johnson. Do you think this is a philosophical shift or the answer to a team that was going to run the ball a lot with a backup quarterback? Obviously, we need more sample size with this. I think this was an answer to, I want to stop the run, but I don't trust my third linebacker. That's my personal opinion. I think that I want to stop the run. I want to be a little bit heavier than nickel, but not as heavy as base. It's a little bit like on offense when the Buffalo Bills call their personnel grouping with Dalton Kincaid, they call it 11 and a half personnel because he's a slot player, but he's also a tight end. So it's like halfway between an 11 and a 12. That's the same vibe that I get when I see Taylor Rapp on the field in three safety sets. I think they want to be a little bit heavier than nickel, but they don't want to be so heavy as to have three linebackers on the field when, you know, you know who our third linebacker is. It's, It's probably Terrell Dodson. You know how you felt about him in preseason? Would you rather have him on the field or Taylor Rapp? That's probably the way they look at it. His second question. In light of Jordan Palmer's comments regarding Dorsey and Dable, is there any concern that Dorsey might not be bringing out the best in Allen? In the final eight games last year, QBR average was 67, first eight games 77. To the casual observer, it does seem he's become a bit more erratic. I think the underlying problem isn't as much play design as much as decision making, and part of that does fall on coaching. I felt sometime that Dorsey struggles at setting plays up and manufacturing easy yards. I have no doubt he will coordinate an offense that puts up good stats, but I'm not as confident in his ability to manufacture first downs and set up plays when things aren't working against good defenses. That combined with Allen not getting to play more with more control may cost the Bills some games. I don't know what the personal relationship is between Ken Dorsey and Josh Allen. I assume it's a good one because Josh Allen vouched for him. But I do think that Dable had a tendency to get a little bit more calm out of Josh. But Josh had crazy days like that under Dable, too. I think anecdotally, we see a little bit more. 
in the last half, but also you're overlapping that with an elbow injury. So it's just really hard for me to isolate it, truthfully. It's really hard for me to isolate it because you don't know if you're doing a plurality pie for Josh on the second half of the year, how much of that is him being sugar high Josh and how much of it is an elbow injury. I don't know is the answer. I think we're going to have meaningful sample size at the end of this year and probably be able to judge that a little bit better. Christopher says, I'm listening to your best ability episode. I agree with what you're saying, but my question is, okay, we know this about Josh. McDermott and Dorsey know that when Josh gets overhyped, it can snowball. What can McDermott and Dorsey do to help him after he starts getting overhyped? Not just tell him not to get overhyped and not just tell him, hey, be smart. He's already starting to snowball. So what do we do now? I don't want him to sit, but what about some plays where he don't have a deep ball or he can ignore quick passes in favor of handoffs or something? Just say, hey, Josh, you're making bad decisions. So for one series, here are a few decisions for you to make that you can have the car keys back when you sober up to mix metaphors. I do think there's things that people do to um, get their quarterback back on track. I think creating binaries is helpful, right? RPO game, I think is helpful. Um, High-low stuff. Um, But Josh can find a way, because of the athlete that he is and the quarterback is, he can find a way to turn any play drunk. Truly. I mean, you can give him a simple high-low binary from, uh, uh, you know, whatever the corner is doing. Right. If the corner is sinking, throw it to the closer route. If the corner is closing, then throw it to the deeper route. Like that can be the binary and he can still make that play drunk. We've seen that before. We saw it against the Jets where he wasn't quite reading the body language of the defender that was supposed to be in conflict. And so he just kind of flailed and put it up. So I don't underestimate the ability of a quarterback to turn any play drunk when they are that big of a, they're that significant of an athlete. Because Josh Allen can do a lot of things on a football field. We've mentioned this before. He can do things other people can't. And he knows that. Whether he's drunk or sober on the football field, to keep going with your metaphor, he still knows that intrinsically. And so because of that, any play where the ball is in his hand and there's a passing play, he can turn drunk. Because he doesn't have to make the call. He can make somebody miss in the pocket and then jumpstart the scramble drill and then push the people out and throw it down the field to Gabe Davis because he does that. So I don't think there is a play call you can do that will guarantee a calm Josh Allen unless it's hand the ball off. But then you're markedly hurting your team versus a good play on the past game. So you can do it. But also some of this stuff you kind of have to work through. So I don't think there's a good answer. When it comes to, well, just do this and Josh Allen calm down. Now, we've talked about this before. I think that increasing your play action can help. I think increasing your pre-snap motion can help because it can give him simpler things and it can give him more answers before the test starts. But none of that guarantees you're going to get a more calm Josh Allen. It's just, hey, we're going to play the probabilities here and hope we get a little bit better. Vince says, Bruce, I'm curious if you have similar thoughts to me on this. Gabe, have a good day today. He sent this after week two. I know the Bills always say great things about him, but that does not mean anything. There was the thought that he could potentially raise his value by playing out the season, but right now I think I would need to see a lot more than what he has done in his career. I'm not quite sure there's going to be a large market for him. I know he had a decent game today, but I still believe that the free agent market for him would not be as large as one might think with his career stats. He's just not a well-rounded receiver. 
Maybe the Chiefs might have some interest, but they also have a couple of highly drafted younger guys. If he stays with the Bills at something close to a Juju contract, I'm fine. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. But giving him 15 to 17 million is crazy to me. I just think he's upgradable. And I say all of this fully aware that my baseline is to always want to support our guys, our draft picks, but I'm moving away from Gabe. But the Bills are known to have patience. Look at Dawson Knox, for example. Maybe not with Kyir Elam, though. Ha ha, he says. I know your buddy Nate is all the way out, and I get that, and I might be shading that way, but I'm not sure I can completely get there. Where do you land with him? I've talked about Gabe Davis multiple times in this podcast, I've talked about it in the offseason. Um, I have a different opinion than a lot in the in the space. Uh, there's a lot of content creators feel very differently about Gabe Davis. Um, some media feel very different about Gabe Davis. Um, I think Gabe Davis is a specialist, and I don't want to pay specialists meaningful contracts. He doesn't win in enough ways for me to want to give him a big contract. So I made a comment on social media when Devontae Parker signed his deal with the New England Patriots. And I said, okay, if Gabe Davis signed that deal, I'd be fine. Because I think it's below market for a wide receiver. It's not Christian Kirk. It's not even Jacoby Myers at this point. I think Jacoby Myers is a more well-rounded receiver than Gabriel Davis. So for me, I look at Gabriel Davis and think, that's a valuable player. I don't want him as my number two and expect him to do all the well-rounded stuff that I want a number two to do. But I still want him on my team. But the problem is somebody else will pay him that way. So I'm in theory in favor of re-signing Gabe Davis, but not to what I think the market will give him. It was the same argument I had about Jordan Phillips. And everybody yelled at me, including Jordan Phillips himself, on social media. I want Jordan Phillips on my team. I just didn't want him on my team for three years, 30 million. And I thought somebody else was going to give him three years, 30 million. And sure enough, the Cardinals gave him three years, 30 million. I don't think he's that type of player. I want him on my line. I was thrilled when Jordan Phillips came back because I want him on my line, just not at that price. And so I feel similarly about Gabe Davis. I love Gabe Davis. I want him on my team, but I truly believe that someone's going to offer him 15 plus million dollars a year. And I don't want him on my team for that. So that's the way I feel about Gabriel Davis. If you have a player who primarily wins down the field and he's a player who gets 100 targets, then those 100 targets are going to have a A dot that is higher down the field because that's where he wins. Or you're going to be targeting that player in areas where he doesn't win, which you don't want to do. So either you're targeting farther down the field, which you don't necessarily want to do. I don't want to have a, a vertical primary player get 100 targets because I don't want that many targets devoted to that far down the field. Or you're putting a fish out of water. You're taking those 100 targets and you're dropping their efficiency because you're using them to target a player in areas of the field where he doesn't win. Either way, I don't want that happening. I am completely fine. I want Gabriel Davis on my team getting 60 to 70 targets that are meaningful down the field. But I don't think I get to have my cake and eat it too. I don't think the universe is going to allow me to have that because I think somebody is going to look at that and go, you know, he was behind Stefan Diggs. What would we do if we gave him more targets? Somebody on the free agent market and somebody you know who's a fan of another team, that will be the discussion if Gabriel Davis signs with another team this offseason. It will be, well, you know, he was stuck behind Stefan Diggs. What can he do when he gets a lot more targets? How much more productive can he be? That's what's going to happen. Because that's what always happens with these free agent discussions. 
leading up to the draft, I said I wanted a number two target that could win in the short and intermediate parts of the field, and you can help run an offense through this person. The Bills got that person. It's Dalton Kincaid. So in future state, I want it to be Stephon Diggs, target person number one, Dalton Kincaid, target person number two. And if Gabriel Davis becomes target person number three, then he's no longer worth the contract that I think he will get on the free agent market. Because I think somebody will pay him that. So that's the way I feel about Gabriel Davis. I like Gabriel Davis, but it's not a binary. It's not, do you like him or do you not? It's not, do you want to resign him or do you not? Anybody you know in life who tries to make everything a binary is just really lacking perspective. It's not a matter of, do you like this person or do you not? Let me ask you, have you ever dated someone that you liked but didn't want to marry? Is that possible? Of course it is. I, I had ex-girlfriends I liked and didn't want to marry. I had ex-girlfriends who liked me and didn't want to marry me. Like, that's the way it works. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be, yes, resign him to the market contract or you hate him. We're just having the wrong conversations about Gabriel Davis. And I've, I've had that opinion since the beginning. So that's the way I feel about Gabriel Davis. The last thing I want to talk about today is aggressiveness. Specifically, when it comes to defense. One of the things we talked about was Sean McDermott this offseason taking over the defensive play calling for the Buffalo Bills and whether or not this team would be more aggressive. And we've been through two weeks now. We do not have meaningful sample size, but I want to put a bug in your ear about a couple things when it comes to aggressiveness. The Bills are third lowest in the NFL in blitz percentage, 11.8% through two weeks. That's really low. If you hear that stat and think, well, I guess they're not aggressive, this part's for you. Because aggressiveness is not synonymous with blitzing when it comes to defense. Aggressiveness is any maneuver you make that is risky on defense. Because the opposite of aggressiveness is passivity. And passivity is synonymous with conservatism when it comes to defensive play calling. Passive and conservative aggressive, and risky. If you do something that is intended to try to make a play on the defensive side of the ball, not just had something done to you, but instead make a play, but it comes with it a risk of the offense making a play, that is by definition aggressiveness, despite what some people in the comments section of Buffalo Rumblings have to say about it. That is aggressiveness. The Bills right now are fifth in the NFL in presser percentage. 29.4 per pro football reference. And they've only given up 302 yards, which is sixth in the NFL. And they have a passer rating against their defense of 73.2, which is fifth in the league and good. But aggressiveness is not synonymous with blitzing. So I want to give you a couple things to keep an eye on this year. So instead of doing something after the fact and using it to try to justify an opinion, I'm going to plant my flag ahead of time, put a bug in your ear so you can keep an eye on these things moving forward so you can make your own judgment as far as whether or not the Buffalo Bills defense is actually more aggressive. Because you know that you hate it. At the end of the year, someone has this mountain of data and they can fiddle with it and concoct it however they want to try to spin a particular narrative. But if I go ahead and tell you the narrative now, if I say, hey, here's the data we're going to use, Later on, here's the data to take a look of. That holds me intellectually responsible, which is good. 
You know how I feel about intellectual honesty. First thing, defensive line stunting. Movement up front can help generate pressure without blitzing because you're attempting to confuse the blocking scheme. It falls under the category of aggressiveness because it carries with it a risk, as all of these things do. Opening up large running lanes for a quarterback or a draw or a screenplay can allow it to backfire and get a big play from the offense. Doing it anyway is a mark of aggressiveness. Keep an eye on it. Rotating safeties post-snap is a form of aggression. You are attempting to confuse the quarterback and hoping it will either create an ill-advised throw or an increase to the amount of time it takes for him to make a decision with the ball, which will allow your rush to get home. Like any form of aggressiveness, it comes with risk. A slow rotation can leave one or both of your safeties out of position and vulnerable to certain route concepts, allowing a big play in the passing game if your safeties can't get from where they were at the snap to where they're supposed to be to execute the responsibility on that play. The Buffalo Bills have rotated their safeties post-snap fourth most in the NFL after the snap per pro football focus. Depth of cushion and press coverage. Press coverage doesn't necessarily mean you're playing man. We have a tendency to think that those two things go together and they don't. As an example, a typical cover three concept, it asks the cornerbacks to align seven to eight yards off the line of scrimmage. They can, however, align in a press bail technique where they're mimicking the press man technique and then they open up after the snap to get to their respective deep third, usually leading up to the snap sometimes. Like the safety rotation I just mentioned, choosing to align in press even though your responsibility is to the deep third of the field is a sign of aggressiveness. It can help disguise the coverage, which might lead to the same stuff we just talked about. But it can also mean your defender is out of position. You're attempting to make a play. You're attempting to do something to confuse the offense. It's a sign of aggressiveness. Trap coverages. Trap coverage at a high level encapsulates coverages that are designed to show the quarterback something to force a specific throw that the defense wants them to make so they can try to make a play on the ball. As an example, I've used this before. Cover six trap, otherwise called Kathy coverage. I've used it before. It looks like quarters to one side and cover two to the other side. It's supposed to look like cover two to the other side. And on cover two, when you have an outside cornerback who's going to continue to sink, you usually want to throw the short out route from whoever your slot player is on that side, the number two on that side. But in this case, that cornerback is actually looking through the number two receiver to the quarterback, and that corner is there to trap that outbreaking route to try and jump that. You see a lot of pick sixes this way. That's how you see it. It's an aggressive coverage call. If you get a quarterback who's particularly frisky, he makes a honey hole throw behind that corner. That guy's just got a safety to beat, and then it's off to the races. And that's how you end up with a 70-yard touchdown pass. Safety's got to be able to tackle. That's a form of aggressiveness. Well, Bruce, none of this stuff is aggressiveness. Defensive coordinators have been doing this forever. Yeah, but they don't do it at the same rate. Gus Bradley does not rotate his safeties post-snap. One out of 10. Maybe 15 out of 100 times. It's not a thing that Gus Bradley does. He's a fairly conservative defensive coordinator when it comes to that kind of stuff. 
That's not what he runs. Everybody rotates their safeties sometimes, but some do it more than others. Well, everybody blitzes sometimes, but some do it more than others. It's the same thing. It's a matter of how often you are doing things to try to put your defense in position to make a play versus how often you are doing something hoping for the offense to screw up. And to be fair, there's nothing wrong with that. The offense will screw up sometimes. That's part of the deal. But every time you make a concerted effort, I am going to do X, Y, and Z in attempt to have my defenders make a play. That is a sign of aggressiveness. Some people do it more than others. It's not a binary. It's not a, are they aggressive or are they not? It's a gradient. It's a, how often do you do it? I'm sick and tired of playing this binary game. Is it aggressive or is it not? It's not. Every defense has some level of aggression to it. And every defense has some level of passivity to it. Well, I think we should run 70% man coverage. Nobody runs 70% man coverage. The overwhelming majority of every defense that every single team faces is zone coverage. Like 70% on average of what NFL receivers will face is zone coverage. Even the people who run a lot of man don't run 70% man coverage. Man, I'm tired of Sean McDermott running his zone coverage soft defense. Just tell me you don't know defense. Just tell me you don't know. Everybody runs a ton of zone coverage in the NFL. That's not what makes him a good defensive coordinator or a bad one. It's not the fact that he runs zone. Everybody runs a ton of zone. It's what type of zone? What type of calls against what type of coverages? How predictable is it? How aggressive is it? All of these things are little sliders on the scale. And it's a lot more nuanced of a conversation than just run more man and blitz more. Because that's what people think when they hear the word aggression. When they hear the word aggressiveness, that's what they think. I just gave you a list of multiple different things, each one of which has its own little slider as far as how often you do it. Every one of them is a measure of aggression. So this is like a pre-watch conversation. When you are watching the defense, look for these things. How often you see these things is a measure of aggressiveness. I almost got out of here without talking about plurality pie. Plurality pie for the Bills against the Las Vegas Raiders. Josh Allen, 28%. Matt Milano, 14%. Matt Milano is a stud. Ken Dorsey, 11%. It's amazing what the offense can do when someone just runs it. Ed Oliver, 10%. So far, living up to that contract. Stephon Diggs, 9%. Just reliable. 100% catch rate, reliable. Dalton Kincaid, 8%. I want him to be the number two target. Other, 20%. Josh Allen, 28%. Matt Milano, 14%. Ken Dorsey, 11%. Ed Oliver, 10%. Stephon Diggs, 9%. Dalton Kagate, 8%. Other, 20%. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the thing. The thing has been done. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.